if you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie Show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. In this interview I did with my father back in 2006, his father was born at the turn of the century. My dad was born before the Great Depression. Listen carefully to what he describes, and he's not coming directly out and indicting white folks in the town in which he grew up with, which was in the north. He's not indicting southerners where his family was from, but it's implicit in what he says. It's implicit in the actions of employers, the largest employer in his hometown. What would it take to make things right for them to change in behavior in which you could therefore put trust into them? Maybe that will help some folks understand. Very often the help the abuser has received has been from people who look just like you. So you can't always trust folks just because they say they're black. There's enough schemers and scammers within our own community who have created abuses. So just think about these things as you are listening to this. I hope you will listen to this with your children, the next generation, so they can help put the rest some of the crap that's going on in our country right now. My father was born in 1908. It originated from the South. I knew he used to drive a heavy, heavy-duty construction equipment and bulldozer. When, when John D was developing Mechanical Hills. We're talking about the 1890s and early 1900s. Black migrant workers from the South came up to work primarily for the Rockefellers because there was a lot of manual labor that had to be done. I think probably a period of maybe 50, 75 years because it took a long time to develop that estate. It was a long, drawn-out period of time. And Terry and I, there were not too many black businesses and I can almost count them on my hand. There were two moving companies. Uh, Mr. Edmund had a, had a moving company and he sold ice and he sold oil. Robin Tyson, I'm, he had an ice business and he sold coal by the bag. Because back then everybody had ice boxes at the candy store. Uh, my parents had a bakery down on, actually down across, it was on Wildey's, Wildey Street. During the Depression, so okay. I don't know how well they did because eventually the bakery closed and okay. they went out of business. My mother always had a very presentable house, even during the Depression. Uh-huh. She always had nice furniture, at least to me, visually. I mean, compared to other people's houses. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean she was, they were renting from an apartment, a cold water flat. She had a knack of making do with what she had. She always had curtains, always changed the sheets once a week. She had middle class values, and I think a lot of these middle class values she got from working for, in white domestic, as a white, as a black domestic help. 
my first visit down south was probably in the late 30s. I might have been about four or five years old. One of the things that caught my attention in the south was the way black cemeteries looked and the way white cemeteries looked. Black cemeteries were un unkept, run down, uh, the tombstones were all in disarray. It just looked like, uh, actually the, the animal cemeteries up north looked better than most black cemeteries in the south, especially in small rural areas, very unkept. Well, I almost felt like I was a privileged individual leaving the north and going south. Everything was ramshackle, you know, everything was run down there. I, they didn't have an icebox in the house. I'm trying to figure out how they kept their food. Most of the food was people smoked. I mean, if you were prominent and halfway wealthy, uh, I mean, you, you would have a smokehouse. Those who were a little better connected economically would have smokehouses. Well, everybody was farmers. Most people were farmers, or if you were not farmers, you worked for a white family um, as a domestic or as a field hand. My uncle Horace, Horace, when he became an older teenager, mm -hmm. where he could do manual work, mm -hmm. I don't know at what age, maybe 10, 11, 12, who knows? The family didn't start eating good until their brother Horace went out and worked and did manual work for white people. And he was able to bring in, he had a little cash money and was able to buy food and so forth. Well, the majority of the, the food they produced was for the, for the table. Well, it was very third world. I mean, they were, I mean, they were struggling. I don't think anybody starved, but that they probably had missed meal cramps at times, you know. It was a sense of, I have to eat this. I have to eat this. And it was like, it would be comparable to going to an African, a third world African country uh -huh. and have to eat their food, you know, the uh -huh. way, you know, the, the sanitary conditions. It was very similar to that. My mother had an art. Yeah, I think she had a little bit of money. She had a lot of land, too, I think. She was running the Cloverdale. Uh -huh. But she used to raise food and send it to Richmond. Wagon load of food. Now, she was very kind of prosperous. And she raised my mother, actually, uh, after a while, because I, I think my mother's uh, uh, mother or father, the both, they were having such a difficult time feeding their children. Uh -huh. I think my mother went into her household uh, just for survival, you know. So, she had a surplus where she could, she had a wagon, she would actually put food on the wagon, um, put the, the crops in the wagon, and take it to Richmond, the Richmond market to sell. My, my grandfather, he didn't even have a pump, didn't have a water He would have to go to the spring to get water. My father was able to give him enough money so he was able to buy a pump, you know, a hand pump. Uh -huh. And I would say this is probably back in the latter, the late uh, 40s, maybe 47, 48. The strange thing, I was talking to a, a guy, he lives in Pickskill, and he's from the same area. He was saying that his parents went to the spring to get water. The same way. Now, you're talking, this guy, he's much younger than me. I'd say he's probably in his 40s. Now, you're talking, this is very recent. His parents. It, that's where they got their water from, the spring. You know? I went in the Air Force in 51. Pretty much in Terrytown, all the way up to 51. Yeah. 
did you have a sense growing up that Tarrytown was a segregated town? Uh, yes. There were certain places you didn't go. Mm-hmm. It was, it's an accepted thing, and I don't think it, it weighed very heavily on you, especially on a youngster, you know. But I knew the YMCA wasn't open to you, and I knew certain diners were not, you know, black people were not welcome. So my dad talks about General Motors, the largest employer in the town, and its custom was not to hire African Americans for anything except for menial labor, like working as a custodian. The General Motors didn't hire black people. Oh, they didn't hire. They didn't start hiring black people until the war, the Second World War, because of the racial policies. But during the Second World War, FDR, because of Philip Randolph pressured that administration. We wanted fair uh, employment for black people mm-hmm. and the war plans. Mm-hmm. So after after this happened, General Motors became open to black people as far as as uh, war employment is concerned. You know, yeah. but prior to that time, black people didn't work at General Motors. In the early part of the war, they primarily made truck vehicles, trucks and jeeps and so forth. Okay. Later on, I'd say around '43, they started making aircraft parts, and that's what my my dad was working down there doing that time from 43. General Motors, the largest employer in the town. So if General Motors has that problem and has that policy, what do you think the policy of the banks? And there weren't African Americans working as loan officers in those banks. So imagine trying to go get a home loan, invest in property, and it's that property ownership and the equity in the home that goes to allow you to sell a home and have more money to send your kids to college without student loans and debt. You, you see what I'm talking about here? Do you see how this stuff is cyclical and how systematic racism keeps people in terms of their mental health and their economic health, how it affects them? That, that's what we're talking about. Until World War II, the government had uh either a school or a miniature factory of some kind to teach women how to use uh, factory equipment and so forth. And and that restaurant across the street was actually integrated just by the force of will of of black workers, black female workers, you know. It was like, um, it was understood that uh, they had to feed these black uh, female workers. It was more than younger uh, cadre of women that took those jobs. Women, I'd say, been in between the ages of maybe 20 and 40. Well, my mother was in that age, but she had young young children to raise, you know, take care of. I don't recall any restaurants that, that black people tried to integrate. Because I think back then they knew that they were not welcome. Once in a while you hear somebody being, you might be called nigger or something. Okay. You know? But not as far as outright hostility, you know, no. Because I think blacks were not a real social threat back then. The numbers and um, the climate of the country, you knew you were black and you knew you had a certain place to, you know, a certain place to to be and it was just understood. But the NAACP was coming up, uh, uh, was maturing and 
and making his presence felt in Westchester County. I think at that time, the NAACP was really making their presence felt. And you really, really felt that it was a very important organization as far as black people are concerned. I think you knew what the NAACP and other organizations was doing because of the black newspaper. Not a, not a local black newspaper, but there was a guy uh, who lived on McCags Avenue. His name was Mr. Kinsley, uh, Kingsley, I think it was. And he sold black newspapers too, you know, like the, the Philadelphia Inquirer and Pittsburgh Courier. Pittsburgh Courier. He sold them throughout um, Terry, the Turn Down. Like yeah, Chicago Tribune. These papers came out weekly. Yes, he was the only distributor. I would say, I would say that he sold at least four different uh, types of newspapers. Huh. Yeah. So, so these newspapers kept you abreast of what was happening as far as the, the civil rights of black people and what the, what the NAACP and other black agencies were doing. Mr. King, Kingsley would have a bag and you would subscribe to the paper, you know? Okay. You know? Okay. Uh, he would walk around throughout the turndowns, you know, selling papers. Basically, Fridays and Saturdays. I think most blacks were reading uh, the black paper. Yes, I think so. I think the civil rights movement certainly affected uh, our psychics. We became aware of what was going on nationally. Black power and the civil rights movement are sort, sort of two distinct things. Civil rights, but not black power. They're almost like two, two opposites almost. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, on Amazon.com. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Live speaking event I did roughly around 2000. Um, unmarried at the time, ABD, all but the dissertation. And I'm teaching at a Christian school, and this is in Temple Hills, Maryland, from the Heart Church Ministries, Episcopal pastor. John Cherry, who died maybe six, seven months ago. But here's the context of the talk. So I'm there. I'm on staff as a teacher. I'm actually teaching Spanish then, writing the dissertation, paying the bills by being a teacher at this school. So you're going to hear me refer to scriptures. It should be no shock to anybody, but I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm also a trained historian. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by revolutionaries. It probably has something to do with the home I grew up in and the fact that I had a mother who was an activist working for the NAACP. And she also was very involved in the uh, African liberation movement, Nelson Mandela movement, you name it. My mother was involved in the movements. My mother grew up in the town of Austin. 
and fellow Austin activist Sunyata Sadiq shared this reflection about her. He writes, my old comrade Sister Opie was an organizer supreme when we marched on the day New York State officials violently repressed the Attica inmates uprising over horrible living conditions. Margaret helped organize a rally at Sing Sing Prison. She later brought Shirley Chisholm to Austin to speak at a large rally against police brutality during Shirley Chisholm's presidential campaign. In those days, we met at Cheatham and Smith Oil Company on Hunter Street in Austin. She fought for a free health care clinic in Austin, along with progressive health care professionals, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Bradley Gordon, who worked closely with us activists. She was the energy behind running the Austin Peace and Justice Center, founded by Connie Hogarth and once located on Main Street in Austin. Today, it's called Westpac and located on the campus of Pace University in White Plains, New York. Sister Opie was a special person who would rally us with song and energy to move straight ahead and not look back. Thank you, Margaret, for all you did for us to grow and create a fighting spirit in us. Growing up in a house where the poster on the wall of our bedroom, me and my brother Marshall, was the 1968 Olympics in which you have the Americans on the podium with the Black Power sign, and then they're supported by the Australian and they're protesting. I mean, that's what we grew up with. It's not like my mother said, you will be a revolutionary. It was just like, she put it there. She led the life. My father led the life. And so I've always been fascinated. You know, in the first book that really brought me to a position of political consciousness and spurred me to go on and get a graduate degree in history was the autobiography of Malcolm X, a self-taught leader and revolutionary. And I just have been fascinated. Another person I love, and I would put her in that same vanguard as a revolutionary, is the activist, anti-lynching activist, Ida B. Wells. I wanted to name our my daughter, Ida. My wife was like, nah, that ain't happening. So, you know, so uh, as people know, there's me, Frederick Douglass Opie. I'm named after a revolutionary. Abolitionist Frederick Douglass, and then my brother, Marshall, 16 months older than me, named after after Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court judge. And then my oldest brother, Randy, named after A. Philip Randolph, who organized the March on Washington. So it was almost as though it was destined that I would grow up to be an historian and interested in revolutions and revolutionaries. And I always wanted the question is, what is it that made somebody a revolution, a revolutionary? I always wondered why do some revolutions, why did they succeed and others fail? The context is me working at this school and speaking to the staff and faculty because we would have these um, chapel services at the church. This is a big congregation. It's like, you know, between 5K and 10K. It's actually where I met my wife. I met my wife at a Friday night Bible study at this church. And I was asked to speak, and I talked about revolutions and revolutionaries. And I talked about it in the context of a teaching that was going on at the church called um, The Infrastructure, in which the pastor was sharing from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, about having all things in common and trying to get the predominantly African-American congregation to get the people to come together for a greater good, collective good. It really had an important impact on me 
And it's also a, a scripture that you see a lot of theologians, particularly those who teach liberation theology, people like James Cone and others who have taught on this. And they often will refer to that Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. So check it out. So I'm talking about that. And I start off, as you will hear me, is I think the first revolutionaries are the men and women who, when taken into captivity in Africa, uh, refused to be enslaved people. Women who, on the African slave trade, chose to take themselves and their newborns and dive into the ocean rather than see themselves or their children be enslaved. I mean, that's that's really revolutionary. I'm thinking about people like Harriet Tubman. It's a revolutionary going back in, into slavery, grabbing people and bringing them uh, to freedom and doing it over and over and over again. And then working as a spy during the Civil War. That's revolutionary. Nat Turner, I mentioned, Denmark Vesey, of folks who are known for the slave rebellions they led. And then the number of slave narratives that I have read about runaways and just what they would go through. You had to be a revolutionary to, to, to take that bold step of running away, fleeing captivity. I mean, they would, they would cut off your ear if they caught you. They would cut off parts of your toes. I, I don't mention this name, but one of the truly revolutionary people that folks should read more about is John Brown. You know, this guy who wants to go into the South, raid the fort and, and West Virginia, uh, Harper's Ferry, grab all the federal arms and then go throughout the South arming enslaved people and causing a revolution that would end slavery. I mean, of course, he's not successful, but the fact that he thought about doing that is just amazing to me. And then I think about the African independence movements. There's so many people who had to take courageous stands uh, to free their country and, and had to go upstream from what everybody else was doing. We're in the midst of uh, a bit of a revolution now. People need to understand what it means to be a revolutionary. The revolution could be a change in how you lead on your job or in your business could be how you change as a school administrator could be as as you decide to lead your household as parents to be a revolutionary cost something and i also talk about the, the importance of institutions your home that you raise your kids in is an institution the school that your child goes to is an institution and churches i talk about how there historically have been churches during the antebellum period when there was slavery, during European colonization of Africa, that there were churches set up to enforce, maintain, and to advance the oppression of, of black people. It's, it's a young Fred Opie, uh, I'm probably around 28 or so, I guess, teaching at a chapel service, and you get a chance to listen to it. I hope you enjoy it. This has been in my computer for a long time. So I've been going into my computer and thinking about the number of audio content that I need to edit and get out. There are so many things in there that I really don't need to do any new recordings for a while. I can just go into the archives and, and do the edits. And that's probably what I will do. Pull content that's already there and make it available to you all. 
Hey, stay safe. And remember, in the words of Frederick Douglass, agitate, agitate, agitate. To be radical, to be revolutionary, means to go against the established status quo. And it takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of boldness to do that. In history, when I look back at radical, the first one I think about is Nat Turner. There's a rebellion in Virginia in 1831. Good book by Stephen Oates called The Fires of Jubilee. Talks about Nat Turner from his youth all the way up into the rebellion, until the day that he was actually caught and, and hung. Interesting thing about Nat Turner was that he was a preacher. And he began to see what God was telling him was in contradiction to what the system that he lived under was. The system of slavery for blacks to think that they belonged in that position, but they should not rebel against that, or it was impossible to change the position. His revolution, his rebellion was not successful. We're going to talk about why revolutions often are not successful. Another time period is Jim Crow, and after slavery, after Reconstruction. Jim Crow was more custom, tradition, than anything else. Black-only water fountain and white-only water fountain. I remember the story my mother telling me. My mother was pregnant, she was traveling down south with my father. About to give birth to my, to my oldest brother. And once they hit the path and made some Dixie line, they stopped at a bus stop, and my mother had to go to the bathroom. But she asked the man, she said, where is the bathroom? I have to go to the bathroom. The man looked at a white man, looked at him and said, I'll bet. So here it is, this pregnant woman had to go out back and squat in the woods being pregnant because of Jim Crow. Jim Crow began as custom and tradition and then became law. A tradition is a practice that seeks to inculcate certain values and behaviors. Inculcate means to ingrain certain values, traditions, and behaviors. That's how Jim Crow was. Any man that decided he was going to stand up, or a woman alike, to Jim Crow law, had to be revolutionary. Now there was always people that stood up and said, no, that's enough. Those people had to be revolutionary. They had to take steps that went beyond the established quo. The colonial period in Africa. Africa was colonized. 1898, there was a famous the Berlin Conference. All the European powers, all of them got together, Germany, all sat around a big table and decided we're going to go carve up Africa because, as we know, Africa has always had natural resources that the world has won. People always wanted to go to Africa to get something there. But during colonial rule, there were Africans that stood up and say, enough's enough. These laws and traditions are trying to establish themselves against the Word of God, the principles of God. The point number two, some of the obstacles to conducting a successful revolution. See, the biggest problem that we will have will not come from the outside. It'll come from the inside. See, division will come from the outside. Bad teaching can come from the inside if we allow that to happen. To conduct a successful revolution, you have to deal with some obstacles. Obstacle number one to a successful revolution, the traditions of unconverted individuals. Independence movement in a country called Guinea-Bissau. One of the premier intellectuals of that movement was a guy named Amilcar Cabril. He said the biggest problem that they had during the independence movement from Portugal were people that joined the movement because they knew that the oppression of Portugal against that country was so strong, but they joined the movement, but they had never had their minds converted. So they could only stay in the revolution for so long, and then the revolution got too revolutionary for them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Be not conformed to this world, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Somebody may have their spirit man converted, 
but their mind is the same. So therefore, when somebody comes up, a revolutionary movement change, then they're able to receive it. Second obstacle to conducting a successful revolution is the collaboration of the unconverted. We always talk about slavery, but see, black folks a lot of times don't want to deal with slave ships came to the coast. Somebody had to bring us out to the coast and then sell us to the slave trade. Somebody had to collaborate. For colonial rule to happen in Africa, somebody in those countries, somebody on the inside has to collaborate. We had some collaborators among our brethren during the civil rights movement. COINTELPRO. It was a program sponsored by your government, your tax money. It was called a counterintelligence program. And one of the first things they did when the civil rights movement got too hot for them, were folks that laid down forever during Jim Crow and segregation started standing up. People sit in Washington and said, whoa. They said, we got to stop these folks. They developed this program, and the main purpose of the program was to infiltrate some of the civil rights movement, the Black Panther movement, the SELC, Southern Leadership Christian Conference. So they sent people in, and if you read books now, all the stuff coming out about Dr. King, how'd they find that information out? See, Dr. King's room was bugged. So one of us had to go up there and bug that room. Acts chapter 4 is a radical state. All things in common. That means spending your money in the black community. Think they're just going to lie down and let us do those kind of things? You better wake up. They're going to try to infiltrate. When you get together, they will try to infiltrate. In El Salvador, many years ago, there was wars raging in El Salvador in the 70s, in Nicaragua in the 70s. Those movements were led by local priests that read Acts chapter 4. And what happened to them? The government, who had people trained here in our country, the School of the Americas, Fort Benning, Georgia, we trained them how to infiltrate, send them back to their country to stop these kind of movements. This is real stuff. You know, you can only go as far as what you know. These are very real situations that are happening. So those are the two obstacles to con conducting a successful revolution. To be oppressed means to be dependent, enslaved, powerless, discontent, and aching. Dependent, dependent on what? Substance abuse. It's a long way to the liquor cabinet, but it's a short distance to the candy jar. Sugar is one of the most addictive drugs around. I said drugs. Sugar is what put your butt in slavery here many years ago. That's what they were selling, sugar. It's the same drug that keeps people in bondage today. Think about diabetes. What do you think is killing us as a people? Cutting off people's legs, losing people's sight. How do you conduct a successful revolution? Second Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You need to cast down those traditions that have oppressed you. Oppressed your spirit, your soul, and your body. Our minds are so screwed up. Drop Squad is a movie where all these Uncle Tom brothers that were supporting the system that was oppressing black people, and they would catch these guys and bring them to like this boot camp or reprogram because we need to get our minds renewed. We need to cast down traditions that are oppressing us. What's oppressing your spirit? I call it the colonized church. The church that's supporting the revolution and then there's the colonized church. The colonized church, you come there, you get happy, you smile at everybody, and then you go home and do the same thing you did all week to keep you oppressed. The revolutionary church is you come there, you get some fire in your butt, you learn the word of God, you get your body straight, you get your mind straight, you get your spirit straight, and you go off for warfare. Second one, the colonized school. What the 
colonists used to do in Africa, the Europeans, the French, the British, they used to go to Africa. They take the best, the brightest of the African, and they send them to their school. Because if they knew the best and the brightest, if they don't send them to their school, they're going to start a revolution. So they used to take them, send them to Portugal, send them to England, educate them, and then send them back so you can think like the colonized. If you want to run a successful revolution, you need to leave the colonized school. The most vital information I have learned as an historian did not come from any assigned reading. I had to make my own reading list. And then the third one, the colonized home. The colonized home is that home where you're not learning anything. You're not trained up in the way you should go. The Bible says train up a child in the way you should go. When he's old, he will not depart. You have to raise up a home where you're, where you're teaching the principle of God and the word of God. And finally, you got to cast down what I call the pimp and collaborator mentality. The pimp and collaborator mentality is you don't trust anybody, always looking to get old, and they're trying to exploit women financially and sexually. We have to get rid of the colonized church, get rid of the colonized school, get rid of the colonized home, and cast down the pimp or collaborator mentality. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show, if you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 